Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 215. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I'm doing two films from the 1960s but I don't think I could pick two different films from the 1960s unless I did a porn movie. The first one, I'm going to do these in reverse chronological order this time just for the fuck of it. The first one is 1966's Lord Lover Duck starring Roddy McDowell and Tuesday World directed by George Axelrod. Then we go back to 1960 for a big tentpole kind of movie, an important um, Otto Preminger film, in fact, Exodus, about the formation of the State of Israel, starring Paul Newman, Eva Marie Saint, and Lee J. Cobb. So, like I said, incredibly different films. One, a comedy that doesn't quite work, and the other, a big important movie, which... For me, kind of works, but sometimes a bit doesn't, but it's, and it's a little bit interesting. So sit back, relax, grab a drink and a snack, and I will get the contact details out of the way. Paleo Cinema Podcast appears every two weeks. It's a podcast of classic movie appreciation. The only rule we have is that the movies have to be more than 20 years old. Uh, feedback's important to podcasters, so if you'd like to leave reviews on iTunes, they'd be very welcome. You can also send voicemails or emails to feedbackpaleo at gmail.com or go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. You can even frame me up on Facebook as long as you're nice and civil and don't spit on the carpet. Just be aware that the podcast does have adult themes at times, so just be aware of that. Uh, anyway, I'll get on with the show now, and um, I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so how is everybody? Um, I live in interesting times at the moment. I'll be really honest with you about that. And uh, not necessarily the best of interesting times, but I'm going to make the best of them. Uh, still, I hear this week whether I get um, made redundant from my job, which I've been at for seven years at the moment. And at the young age of 60, it probably means an early retirement for me in real terms, or at least a break and then some part-time work of some kind. So, um, yeah, it's a bit of a shock. And um, because of my anxiety issues and all sorts of other things, it's been a little bit difficult. I'll be really honest with you about that. I'm not asking for sympathy. I'm just giving background. So um, I find out on Wednesday, I'll be putting it all over social media, of course, in a professional and nice way, though my instincts are to the contrary. Nonetheless, um, it does give me more time to pay attention to the podcasts, do some writing about movies, which is something I really want to do, and um, kind of you know, take things easy. I haven't had more than two weeks off in a row in seven years. And I probably need to do that, to be honest with you. Um, we've got, you know, we're, we're okay, we're doing okay. But um, Sal and I are planning to do a little bit of travel, um, kicking back. We've got the new car, the beautiful Toyota RAV4, which is about the size of a small apartment in Japan. And uh, all-wheel drive, it's got three USB ports for plugging shit in. I could podcast from the passenger seat incredibly easily, and it, who knows, I may well do that. But, um, yeah, and but I've got to get through the next few weeks. So Wednesday, I hear, then there's a two-week period when they kind of put you into a redeployment mode, which means they tell you how to make resumes and things like that and bore the fuck out of you for a fortnight. But... Um, the odds are very good that it will occur because I have requested that it occur. Um, I won't go into reasons why. I don't think that dissing companies that you work for or you previously worked for 
is something I don't want to be that kind of person if you know what I mean but um, yeah there are difficulties so that I'll leave that aside now um, yeah so I've been it's winter here by the way it's really fucking cold winter now I know my dear Canadian friends and dear North American friends and dear Scandinavian friends and dear people who live in Tasmania as well and hi to Kerry uh, and Tansy by the way uh, yeah, I don't like the cold, to be honest with you. I grew up in Sydney, which is subtropical. And I moved to Melbourne for reasons that, at this time of year, I can never understand. I own the place now, so I'm stuck here, I suppose. But, uh, yeah, today it got down to zero centigrade, which I know is not much. But neither my clothing nor my body are good with the temperature that low, I went out to do the usual thing I do on the weekend. I didn't go to the gym because it was too fucking cold. I couldn't bear it. But I did go out and do, you know, buying fresh bread and, and a few grocery items and things like that. And um, the new car does have a good heater. I'll give it that much. It takes a little while to warm up, but it does have a good heater. But I'm not really good with cold weather, and I'm looking forward to things warming up a little bit. And, again, there's that kind of irony of, um, going through this redundancy thing in the coldest part of the year when the days are shortest and when you go to work it's dark and when you come home from work it's dark and I never got used to that I never have got used to it but um, yeah so it's winter and um, that doesn't help with anything else of course but on the other hand there are movies now I'll bring up my letterbox and talk about what I have been watching I've been doing a bit of gaming as well because it's a quite a relaxing thing for me to do during stressful times to kill millions of aliens one by one. But um, I have been watching a few movies because I was kind of shopping around for the movies that I wanted to do for this podcast. So there were a couple of possibilities there. Uh, let's see. King of Kings. I was going to, th- I was thinking of doing King of Kings, the movie um, with Jeffrey Hunter, which was known in some circles as I was a teenage Jesus. But I may well do it for future podcasts. It's got a good supporting cast. You've got Harry Gardino in there, Robert Ryan, a whole bunch of other people. But Biblical Epics, um, that's something I've really covered on Paleo Cinema Podcast, to be honest with you. Possibly because I have this childish urge to mock Christianity if I do a Biblical Epic. I really should withdraw that and, um, or maybe even do it with a Christian person. I know several Christian people who would be willing to come on to the podcast. So we can get my uh, kick-ass atheist viewpoint and their um, usually quite left-wing Christian viewpoint on the films. And maybe that'll kind of work for the podcast. Let me know what you think, because um, I do find biblical epics a bit problematic. I don't like movies about nuns either, um, except for certain Italian ones from the 1970s. But things like the nun's story and things like that leave me cold. It's a really weird thing. Uh, while we're on the subject of religion and religious movies, um, Cardinal George Pell, an Australian cardinal who's the third top person in the Vatican, has um, been charged with certain offences towards children in the 1970s. And that's been a big news story here. Um, I'm not saying anything about that. Uh, I have friends who have first-hand experience of the effects of um, certain acts by certain people who are third from the top at the Vatican. 
And that makes for interesting things, and I'm sure there are going to be any number of movies on that subject, although there already have been. Um, I'm thinking of the one with Philip Seymour Hoffman and Meryl Streep in particular um, regarding that subject. But, uh, yeah, so maybe I should kind of go back and do a couple of historical biblical epics for future paleo cinemas. You know, keep it fresh, hit things that aren't necessarily in my comfort zone, but that are a part of cinema history and are part of cinema history in the period in which paleo cinema covers. So, um, yeah, there's always that possibility. By the way, even if you don't subscribe via Patreon and throw me a dollar a month um, via that particular crowdfunding platform, you can suggest movies for the podcast by going to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. I've got a big book of them. And, in fact, Lord Love a Duck was one that somebody asked me to cover. Um, Exodus wasn't, but uh, Lord Love a Duck was um requested i don't know it might have been by brian sarah um or somebody equally knowledgeable and wonderful with films but uh yeah i'm kind of glad i'm covering it uh so yeah there's interesting times uh other things i've watched been watching a bit of television i'd finished the first season of american gods which i enjoyed and uh continue to enjoy i reread the book by neil gaiman and um yeah i enjoyed that as well the movie doesn't uh, sorry the tv series doesn't strictly follow the plot of that uh book but it, it parallels it nicely i mean they're two different media and uh i think american gods came out in a book form about a decade ago so there are uh, changes in the world that kind of needed to be incorporated into that and i think it works kind of well the way they've um, re-engineered Neil's book uh, and, uh, and further adaptations of his works are always welcome. There have been a number of them in the past. Stardust, Coraline, uh, Neverwhere, a bunch of other ones. But yeah, uh, I really enjoyed American Gods. Watch that. Um, what else have I been watching apart from YouTube videos? The second season of the Australian's kind of supernatural science fiction Almost superhero TV series Clever Man has started. I've seen episode one and I enjoy it. I've got the first season of it on Blu-ray and I'm going to get the second season as well. I don't know whether it'll go more than two seasons. I want to see where the story arc goes. Uh, I know the Sundance Channel is uh, showing season two of Clever Man and there may be means by which people on the northern part of the planet can uh, catch up with that series, but it's worth looking at. It doesn't tell the stories from uh, a wide-angle viewpoint, and so it does take a little while and a little effort for um, white people, basically, to get their head around the way the story is being told. But having said that, great cast. Um, I'm really enjoying what Wayne Blair is doing with the series. He's the guy who's um, created and directed the first episode of the second season and most of the episodes in the first season, I think. Uh, great ensemble cast really does create a slightly different alternate universe and if you haven't checked out clever man you really should do so uh we want to encourage a wide range of storytellers to tell kind of superhero movies superhero stories sorry what do i keep saying movies stories and um expand the available range of these tales and the ways in which the stories are told so i'm enjoying that as well um, yeah, one other thing too, uh, something I may not have mentioned last time around, 
But uh, the sister podcast to Paleo Cinema Podcast, the wonderful women over at Galactic Suburbia, um, I've had two of them on this podcast recently, Tansy and Alyssa. The third person in the triumvirate, Alex, has agreed to get into a Paleo Cinema Podcast. Later this year, she's currently travelling around. Uh, she's got some long service leave. And her and her husband are travelling around to weird places with a telescope. When Alex gets back, her and I are going to do two disaster films from the 1970s, and I don't mean it Long Last Love and Sextet. I mean we're going to do The Poseidon Adventure and The Towering Inferno. Doing those two back-to-back, um, it's going to be a lot of fun. We kind of talked around at Continuum 13, the recent convention, talked around what we wanted to do, and we decided that we were going to do those disaster movies. So it should be a lot of fun. I did the musicals with Alyssa and Tansy, but Alex is a very different movie guy. So we're um, hitting a bit of Owen Allen disaster porn from the 1970s. And I use porn very, very lightly in this case. So um, I'm looking forward to doing that too. I always like it when um, people with different views on movies uh, podcast with me. It's nice to have, not friction, but it's nice to have that kind of cocktail of different flavours in the podcast. And I'm going to try to do more of that now that uh, it's very likely that I'll have a lot more spare time on my hand. I also want to get uh, my friend in Texas, Dave McLemore, onto a future podcast where we're going to do some westerns because he's in Texas. And why the fuck wouldn't you do westerns with a guy in Texas who likes westerns? And a few other people as well. Um, yeah, shout out to Morris and Will and also Max because a good friend of the podcast, Morris um, from Love That Album podcast, is currently traveling over to Canada to um, hang out with uh, Large William from The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. So that should be a good meetup for them and uh, bon voyage to the guys and I hope they have a wonderful time, all of them. So anyway, I'm going to take a break, and when I get back, as I said, we're doing these in reverse order, I'm going to do George Axelrod's 1966 movie, Lord Love a Duck, starring Roddy McDowell, and Tuesday World. Lord Love a Duck looks like a beach party picture, but it's actually a booby trap. This motion picture is a non-optimistic get-well card. The planet Earth is the lunatic asylum of the galaxy. And I keep swimming around in this little pond. Lord Love a Duck is about a guy who suddenly goes stark, raving, sane, and commits a mass murder. It's a comedy. And they fly away.
I keep swimming around in this little old pond. Can't fly like an eagle, can't get me a swan. Lord Love a Duck is against teenagers, their parents, movies, cars, school, and several hundred other things. was the year of the pussycat. This is the year of the duck. <coughs> Lord Love a Duck is a really weird film for a couple of reasons, one of which is it's a satire that doesn't really work. Uh, when somebody does a, a satire about beach movies and about youth culture when they're in the mid-40s, it's probably not going to go well. That's just a tip for the future filmmakers who want to make a movie satirising youth culture and beach parties. Uh, it was directed and written by a guy called George Axelrod. And George Axelrod did a lot of work that I really like. He wrote the script for Breakfast at Tiffany's. He wrote the script for The Manchurian Candidate. He wrote the play upon which The Seven Year Itch was based. Uh, he wrote the screenplay for Bus Stop with Marilyn Monroe. Will Success Spore Rock Hunter, he wrote that play as well. Uh, he wrote the screenplay for one of my favourite kind of vulgar pleasures of the mid-1960s, Paris, When It Sizzles, which I've spoken about on a previous paleo cinema. And, uh, yeah, and did a really bad movie, which sounds incredibly misogynistic, possibly because it is. And that is a movie called How to Murder Your Wife, starring Jack Lemmon, Terry Thomas and Verna Lisi. Lord of Love Duck was made in 1966, but it's in black and white, which shows you that it was a kind of the low-budget end of a studio picture. Uh, it was based on a 1961 novel by a journalist called Al Hine, and it kind of varies a bit from the novel as well. It stars Roddy McDowell as Alan Musgrave, a, a senior high school student, played by Roddy McDowell when he was 38 years old. He's as old as Art Harvey Corman, who plays the principal of the school, just to give you an example. Uh, and uh, Alan Musgrave's a, a weird character, He's a fish out of water. He's almost like Loki. He's a trickster kind of character. And he gets an ID fix on a, uh, a senior at high school called Barbara Ann Green, played by Tuesday World. And here's a little bit of what Alan says about Barbara Ann Green. The movie starts, well, soon after it starts, with him narrating uh, the story into a tape recorder in prison after he's committed a mass murder. Always a good subject for a comedy. Now, the beginning, of course, is Barbara Ann Green. Dear, sweet, simple-minded Barbara Ann. Barbara Ann. Whose deepest and most heartfelt yearnings express with a kind of touching lyricism the total vulgarity of our time. So we never actually understand Alan's motives for things because um, he, he's just kind of almost there to make what Barbara Ann wants happen. He's uh, ingratiating, he's a karate expert, he's very smart, uh, and he looks through the pretensions of every other character in the movie. 
quite easily and with um, his tongue very much in his cheek. So um, Alan decides to make what Barbara M wants come true. She's a high school student, so she wants to be very popular with the other girls. So she needs um, 10, or 12, sorry, cashmere sweaters to join the elite rich girl club at the school. And uh, that leads to us meeting her father, who's divorced from her mother, played by Lola Albright. I'll talk about that character in just a moment. But her father, played by Max Showalter, is... Well, it has to be seen to be believed. There's a scene where he's buying the sweaters for her and she's trying on these different cashmere sweaters. And both of them, um, while she's doing it, are becoming almost crazily orgasmic about these cashmere sweaters. It's a very Ed Wood Jr. kind of scene. And um, with a kind of over-the-top, crazy, what-the-fuck incensed um, kind of underlining it. It really is um, something really weird. And then they go to a drive-in diner and eat hot dogs together. Now, the symbolism of that's fairly obvious. But the thing that gets me and the thing that I like and the thing that's unfortunately really underplayed in this movie is that there are some funny things, but you've got to kind of dig the fuckers out to find what they are. For instance, the colours of the 13. She decides to get 13 because it's better than 12, and Ellen tells her that she needs 13. Cashmere sweaters uh, all have those crazy kind of names that fashion often puts on rather prosaic colours. And I'll just give you an example of some of the colours of cashmere sweaters. Remembering this is a black and white movie that um, uh, Barbara Ann tries on and buys at the sweater shop. Grape Yum Yum, Banana Beige, Lemon Meringue, Pink Put-On, Papaya Surprise, Periwinkle Pussycat, which is the one that's mostly emphasised, Turquoise Trouble, Midnight A-Go-Go, and Peach Put-Down. So, you know, there's kind of a a bit of humour in there if delivered correctly. But um, one of the things that Axelrod does with this movie is it's supposed to be a satire, but it's a kind of shotgun satire, lots of little bits of um, lead flying in all directions. It really doesn't um, aim and and accurately focus at satire the way that Axelrod did with something like Seven Year Itch, which is all about sexual repression and aging middle-aged men lusting after younger women so the the satire had a point and a focus in that but in this one there's not the discipline that the satire needs now there have been other movies that have satirized beach party and movies and teenage angst the most um one that comes to mind at least is um psycho beach party from 1999 which um does it really really well but Lord Lover Duck kind of doesn't. I mean, for a start, Roddy McDowell, while he's a charismatic presence, doesn't have a script that, that plays on his kind of persona of being rather sexless. Of course, Mr. McDowell was gay, and so in Hollywood, he wasn't really going to ever be a romantic lead in the way that Rock Hudson was. He started out, of course, as a child actor in the 1940s. 
after his family moved to the United States uh, just as World War II was starting. But, um, yeah, he was always going to be a character actor. Apparently he was a fantastic photographer. He was a friend of, of many, many stars and a fine photographer. He knew everybody's secrets and kept them, which is rather interesting. And if Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast is to be believed, he had an extremely large dick. But I don't have any evidence of that one way or the other, so I'll leave that just where it is. Um, so Rodney Dale's a lot of fun to watch in this movie. He realises it's a bit of fluff, and he's, um, this is a year before Planet of the Apes, where he uh, had to act his way through some heavy um, John Chambers makeup. But... Um, yeah, so Rodney Dale's good in this. And the weird thing is that the character who I like best and who's acting really, really well is Lola Albright, who's playing Tuesday World's mother. Lola Albright was a stunningly beautiful actor. Um, even at 41 in this movie, she's playing a cocktail waitress who has to dress up in a bustier and a pussycat tail and things like that. And Lola Albright is hot in this movie, much, much more than Tuesday World was. And uh, Lola, she actually won a Silver Bear Award at the Berlin Film Festival for acting in this movie. And her, um, Marie, the mother, is a really good acting role about an ageing woman. And uh, some of it's in the script, but uh, I think Lola Albright struck out on her own from Axelrod and decided to make the character much more touching and poignant than this broad and broad stroke satire really demanded. And I really like her character in this one. She's um, alcoholic and she uh, brings men home from the cocktail bar at times and is fairly unashamed about it. But um, And, of course, that means that her daughter's running a bit wild, so she's not necessarily a good mother. But she's an understandable character, and she's the only character in the movie, really, that we understand their motivation, where they're coming from, and who they are. And she's the only one who um, earns our regard in any ways, because um, Barbara Ann's a kind of shallow, vapid, blonde teenager who wants what she wants and doesn't really regard anybody else's feelings in these things. Uh, her father's kind of semi-incestuous. Um, the school principal, played by Harvey Corman, kind of gets seduced by Barbara Ann into letting her pass um, botany class, and they give it a, a weird name because one of the things that this movie is trying to satirise also is um, the new education. And um, Harvey Corman's quite funny in the movie as well. He knows that he's trying to... There's an interesting thing that happens with actors in certain kinds of movies where they know the script's not necessarily there and um, they try to do the best they can and to play it really broad. They know it's a satire, they know it's broad, they know it's ridiculous and they try to play at that level and that's definitely what Harvey Corman's doing as indeed is Ruth Gordon who plays the um, mother of the character whom Barbara Ann eventually marries played by, a, a, to be honest with you, a, quite a vapid actor called um, Martin West playing Bob Barnard, who wants to be a marriage counsellor, and who Barbara Ann meets when uh, she and Alan go to a church being held in a drive-in cinema where everyone sits in their cars and listens to quite a um, weird sermon. Again, this is another satire of Californian youth culture. 
the fact that everybody sits in a drive and listening to a sermon, which is mostly, from the look of things, not necessarily about God, but about repressing teenage sexuality, which, of course, is an ongoing theme in a number of religious circles. Uh, and, and even that doesn't play out particularly, except as a way to introduce Bob into the plot. Um, the, the punches are pulled. They never, they never follow through. There's never that kind of twist just as they connect to make them really effective. It's, um, it's a timid movie in a lot of ways, which is kind of surprising, uh, particularly in the 60s. And uh, when you've got to consider the movies that were considered really vulgar but uh, now have a great reputation, films such as The Loved One, which satirizes the funeral industry, really went to town and, and didn't pull its punches on the satire. And even, um, you know, there, there was room here to do something uh, satirising the repression of teenage sexuality and all those sorts of things. But George Axelrod's coming at it from a guy born in 1922. He's coming from that viewpoint. And he doesn't respect or understand youth culture, even when he's satirising it. There is a, a bit of a satire about beach movies, particularly with a character uh, played by Martin Gable who's a producer of uh, beach movies. And uh, there's a scene where he and Alan are talking in a queue. And it turns out he's collecting unemployment benefits, for instance. And um, he lives on a boat with um, his attractive girlfriend. And he's you know, he basically makes money from these beach movies, but doesn't really, um, you know, he's a bottom feeder in Hollywood in a lot of ways. And George Axelrod looks down at him rather than kind of celebrating the stilliness and stupidity of beach movies. He thinks that they're such a serious threat that they deserve to have um, a satire, but he can't be really fucked with doing the satire correctly. And, and that makes it a, a problematic film. There are things to like in this. There are moments to like. There's Lola Albright's character, particularly when she's sitting down in front of the mirror, and there's a magnifying mirror which is... Uh, position centre screen to make to distort her face and make her look grotesque but it doesn't really work because Lola Albright's such a stunningly attractive woman that it just um, it's just there to kind of show a bit of directorial smarty pants action rather than um, being something that's important to the movie it really doesn't have any discipline in this film uh, there's the scene at the start where um, Alan is doing a Rorschach test with a female psychologist when he's in prison, which has got some fun moments in it. Um, there's a few funny bits with Ruth Gordon's character, for instance, in there, even though, um, again, the, these characters are crazily underwritten. Um, she's a snob, and yet she's kind of out there. Uh, the character never really gels, and Ruth Gordon tries to do what she can with it. Uh, but it really doesn't... Um, work in in any meaningful way uh i know a lot of people like this film but i'm finding that the thing i can do with it is pick out the moments and it's a, it's a movie that hasn't aged well as well because you've got that kind of you know really sick incest thing with the father and the and the sweaters you've got um harvey Corman's character being seduced um, by Barbara Ann, and there's a microphone involved there. So the phallic satirism, the phallic symbolism, sorry, in this movie is pretty damn broad. And but none of it ever kind of lands as comedy, which is really it's kind of almost like dismissive satire, 
where um, the, the jokes don't land. Maybe they needed somebody who, um, even though Axelrod has done a number of funny things, I'm not sure what this movie was really aimed at and what the point he was trying to make with it is, except to say, these things are popular and I'm going to take the piss out of them. So that, again, uh, makes it problematic. Uh, Tuesday World does okay. Uh, she's not asked to stretch herself at all as an actor, except to play a, a bubble-headed teenager. Um, I do like Ra- Harvey Corman in the scenes he's in. Uh, he plays it as broadly as he does Hedley Lamar in Blazing Saddles, and that kind of works. He was always a very broad comedic actor, and, and that really does work for him. The only other thing to really say about this movie is the cinematography. The cinematography is pretty good. But unfortunately, the cinematographer's name is Daniel L. Fapp. And that kind of underlines what I think about this film, in that George Axelrod was definitely fapping when he made it. It's, um, it's a clumsy piece of work, and Axelrod has done much better work previous to this movie. And I really think that he needed um, to sharpen the satire much, much more and, and focus it than he did in this film. It's a, it's a kind of missed opportunity because I could see a, a pastiche of youth culture and the modifications to the educational system that came in in the 1960s working um, and also um, satirising teenage girls at school and their cliques. That's been done any number of times. Mean Girls, Heathers, all those sorts of movies really did do that. But what he's trying to do is maybe focus on too many things at once, too many different aim things to aim his gun at with the satire. And that really doesn't serve the movie well. But um, again, most valuable player in this movie is Lola Albright. She actually brings something to her character of Marie Green, which really does end up being quite touching. And the movie, at the end of it, descends into kind of um, tragedy as well. Uh, there's an arc there where up to a certain point they go, we're making this a bugfuck tragedy, and certain things happen to certain characters. And it drops off a cliff. And uh, that's, yeah, it, it just doesn't hold together, unfortunately. But anyway, I'm going to end it there for Lord Lover Duck. Uh, I was asked to do this one, and I'm fine to do it. There are things interesting in there. Uh, it's probably a movie that plays better if you're really drunk, to be honest with you. But um, I wasn't really drunk when I watched it. Uh, but. Uh, yeah, again, Roddy McDowell holds his own. Lola Robert is magnificent in the movie. And the Neil Hefty music is pretty cool as well. But uh, again, satire needs to be focused, and this one definitely isn't. So it's time for another break, and when I get back, we're going to be talking about a much more serious film, and that is 1960's Exodus, starring Paul Newman, Eva Marie Saint, and Lee J. Cobb. Otto Preminger presents Exodus, the biggest bestseller since Gone with the Wind, read by more than 50 million around the world, now on the screen, an epic of our time, the birth of a nation, with Paul Newman as Ari Ben-Kanan, Eva Marie Saint as Kitty Fremont, Ralph Richardson as General Sutherland, Peter Lawford as Major Caldwell, Lee J. Cobb as Barack Ben-Kanan. Sal Mineo as Dove Lando, John Derek as Taha, and introducing Jill Haworth as Karen. Every scene filmed where it actually took place on the island of Cyprus and in Israel. 
I'm 15 years old now, Dov. I'm not little anymore. You shouldn't have come here in the first place. But, Dov, you're always fighting. And you're always in a place where you might be killed. And if anything should happen to you, before I told you how much I love you, I just wouldn't want to leave anymore. Please love me, Dov. I'm not afraid. Bite magazine says, Otto Preminger's film Exodus goes beyond the book as a tale told in proud passion. I will not take him back to Karolos. He'll go to Palestine with me. Or right here on this ship we will die together. The New York Times says, the best blockbuster of the year. Dazzling, eye-filling, nerve-tingling, rips the heart. You can't fight the whole British Empire with 600 people. It isn't possible. How many Minutemen did you have at Concord the day they fired the shot heard around the world? I don't know. 77. Time magazine says, a terrific show. A serious, expert, frightening, and inspiring thriller. You heard what I said! Fight! Not beg! Fight! Exodus. The Chicago Tribune says, a tremendous picture. The Los Angeles Examiner says, terrific impact and fury. The Dallas Herald says, a superb candidate for the Hall of Screen Greats. The Boston Traveler says, magnificent. The Miami Beach Sun says, stands head and shoulders above all others. The Cleveland Plain Dealer says, one of the great films of all time. Exodus. The 1960 uh, American movie, Exodus, directed uh, by Otto Preminger and written by Dalton Trombo, this, along with Spartacus, was the breaking of the blacklisting of writers. Trombo wrote the script for Exodus and wrote the script for um, Spartacus, and that was the end of that. But having said that, the 1958 book, Exodus, by Leon Uris, upon which the movie is based, is only loosely based on history. The real history of the Exodus ship is much more complicated and not as uplifting as it was portrayed in the book and the movie. In fact, the um, original ship, which was called the President Warfield and was built in 1927, was a much larger ship. There were about 2,500 uh, Jewish displaced people in the ship when it tried to reach um, Palestine, as it was then later to become the State of Israel. Hold that thought, and I'll give you a precy of the movie. Then I'll tell you um, how it was inaccurate regarding the ship, which was known as Exodus 1947. Here's a synopsis from IMDb, and again, they're always a little bit ropey, these ones. The theme of this movie is the founding of the State of Israel. The action begins on a ship filled with Jewish immigrants bound for Israel, who are being offloaded on Cyprus. An intelligence officer uh, succeeds in getting them back on board their ship, only to have the harbour blocked by the British, with whom they must negotiate. The second part of the film is about the situation in Israel as independence is declared, and most of their neighbours attack them. Now, the people in, in the movie, the ship eventually does get to Israel, or does get to Palestine, and... And the people from the ship are integrated into Jewish society in kibbutzes and in other areas. 
Um, very big cast in this one and quite a good one. Uh, I'll just give you the high points of it that I like anyway. Let's see. So we've got Paul Newman playing Ari Ben Kanan, who's an intelligence officer for um, Haggadah, which is one of the quote-unquote terrorist groups of um, Jewish refugees in Palestine. Who um, the other the other one, of course, is Irgun, which is an offshoot of Haggadah, and was much more militant. Um, how, for instance, Irgun evolved into the um, the Hood Party in. Israel as we have it now. So, um, the very complicated politics in this. And the movie does a fairly good job of negotiating through that. Um, after the people arrive in Israel, or we'll say Israel just for the sake of convenience here, um, Kitty, played by um, Eva Marie Saint, meets um, a young Danish Jewish girl who's searching for her father after the war. Um, called Karen Hansen, played by Jill Haworth. Um, they both end up living in a kibbutz, which is on a valley. One side of the valley is where the kibbutz is. The other side is where a Palestinian town is. And the um, the sheikh of the Palestinian town gifted them um, land so that a kibbutz could be given in the 1920s. This is how long this stuff's been going on. Though the movie does make the point that the um, conflicts are 3,200 years old at the time. Um, Dov Landau, played by Sal Minio, is uh, a, the kind of boyfriend of Karen. He um, was in the concentration camps, and there's a fantastic scene as he's being contacted by members of Irgun and is interviewed by Ari Ben Kanan's uncle, Akfa, played by David Apatashu. And there's a fantastically tense scene as um, Akiva questions Dov about what happened to him during the war and you know, what he knows of the concentration camps. There are some inconsistencies in Dov's story and Akva slowly gets them out of him. And they're, they're quite horrific and particularly for a movie in 1960, they are very confronting. Um, the... As a 13-year-old boy, what the character of Dov went through. Now, Sal Minio is fantastic in this film. He, um, much underestimated actor, closeted gay man again, um, which is kind of interesting because the way the movie sets it up and this um, kind of amused me in a horrible way because I've, I've got a sick sense of humour and we all know that. Um, there's a scene when the King David Hotel is blown up and it's blown up by Dov and another one of the Irgun guys played by George Maharis. So basically, um, uh, the one terrorist act in the movie is conducted by uh, an Italian-American gay actor and a Greek-American gay actor. So that kind of amused me in the background. But um, well, the interesting thing is that um, even though Dov blew up the King David Hotel, he kind of gets away with it. Uh, which is kind of interesting. Um, I've read newspapers from 1947, 1948, when they talk about the blowing up of the um, King David Hotel in then Palestine. And there was a lot of stuff in the Anglo media, you know, here in Australia and in England. And you can look this stuff yourself up in the archives, where they're talking about Jewish terrorists and Jewish terrorist attacks in Palestine. 
and it was the same kind of language that's used for other kinds of terrorism. I mean, I'm not trying to compare what Irgun did with what ISIS does, but the language of the media has some interesting parallels there. But anyway, they blew up the King David Hotel, uh, leading to fatalities, Dov's imprisoned and um, manages to escape. And in the meantime, the other side of the family, being the father of um, Ari Ben Kanan, played by Paul Newman, Barack Ben Kanan, is played by Lee J. Cobb. Previous name was Leo Jacoby. Uh, and Lee J. Cobb's fantastic in this movie. There's a fantastic wordless scene where he meets his brother um, Akva, played by David Apatishu, in prison. And the way Lee J. Cobb and David Apatishu act without speaking a word in that scene is just a lovely piece of work. It really does um, show like the best of the best doing some interesting stuff wordlessly. And that's kind of uh, one of the things I took away from this film, that there's some fantastic acting in it. Um, we've also got Ralph Richardson playing General Sutherland, who runs the displaced people camps in Cyprus. And there's rumour around that he um, is of Jewish ancestry himself. And within the guidelines and the restrictions that he has, Sutherland does try to act with compassion and humanity. Now, the book was a lot harsher toward the British than the movie was. But um, there are two sides to the British thing which are portrayed in the movie. The first one is Ralph Richardson's General Sutherland, who acts with kindness and compassion where he can, though um, he does eventually throw in the towel and ask to be um, removed from that position because he finds it untenable. And then you've got Major Caldwell, played by Peter Lawford, who's anti-Semitic and smug and none too bright and gets conned by Ari, Ari Ben Kanan a number of times in a number of ways. And he shows that kind of imperial complacency of Britain, which then brings us back to what actually happened in the real Exodus 1947 ship. Here's what happened, and this is really kind of broad terms because it's a very complicated thing. What happens is um, the ship's allowed to dock with all of the refugees on it at Haifa Harbour, but all the refugees on it are moved to three other ships. Now, they're not being taken back to Cyprus. They decide that they're going to take them back to a port near Marseille and um, you know, put them in camps in France. They get near Marseille in these three ships, and the French go, no fucking way. So the ship then goes back to um, Hamburg, which is in the British-occupied sector of post-war Germany. And the people from the ships were actually put into camps back in Germany. That's the historic reality of it. In fact, there's a documentary about it called Exodus 1947, which might be useful to look at. But the movie doesn't play it out like that. In the movie, the people get to Israel and become a part of um, the formation of the Jewish state of Israel. Um, there is a, a sympathetic um, Palestinian character, Taha, played by John Derrick. Again, not a person of that particular ethnicity. Ethnic casting was a very loose thing in those days. Who runs the village opposite the kibbutz where um, Barak Ben Kanan is based and where he formed the, his community many years before. And um, we, we get to see a little bit about who he is. He grew up with Ari Ben Kanan. They grew up almost as brothers. 
and were very close and remained very close. And we see a piece of the radicalization of the Palestinian Arabs as the State of Israel is formed. Now, it's done in very broad terms, and it brings into um, the mix the interesting fact that the Grand Mufti involved in um, Palestine spent the war years as a guest of Hitler in Germany. And we do see his representative, uh, a guy called von Storch, played by that wonderful character actor, Marius Goring, who gives an ultimatum to Tahar about what's going to happen to the kibbutz as the state of Israel is formed. And again, another form of exodus occurs where, under cover of darkness, all the small children from the kibbutz are moved to a safer location overnight um, before uh, some very heavy Palestinian um, armed forces from the Grand Mufti um, invade the valley and because it's a strategically important area and they don't want a kibbutz on one side of it as their forces move through. Uh, it's a dog's breakfast of a, a political situation there, but there's a ruthlessness which is shown by um, the Palestinian forces under the then Grand Mufti, which um, is, is quite confronting for a 1960 movie. Again, this is a didactic film. Uh, a lot of people see it as a Zionist epic. I think there's crazily complicated politics here which involve religion, which involve history 3,000 years old, and one side is favoured more than the other, and I fully acknowledge that, and I think that in fairness to the movie, in fairness to all of the different nationalities involved, that is the case. And we can understand why these are people who have lived through hell and who just want a place for home. And that's a kind of universally um, acknowledged and universally understood thing. People, having a place of your own, having a, a place to be, having your sense of identity not threatened along with the lives of your whole um, culture is an important thing. And that comes across very well in the movie as well. There, there are some really great um, bits with a doctor played by Felix Aylmer in the kibbutz, um, with a guy called Lakovic played by Gregory Ratoff in, I think, his final role, who's one of the um, older Jewish guys on the ship. Hugh Griffith playing Mandria, a Cypriot who helps them get the ship. Um, Hugh Griffith's fantastic in this film. There's never a movie where he doesn't look like he's having a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big movie. It's one of those great big 1960 movies with an intermission in the middle. And uh, the fact that it was filmed on the locations in Cyprus and in Israel gives it um, a texture and a, um, an importance and a weight that it might not have had otherwise. Uh, there's some great action scenes in it as well. Um, there's, you could use this book as a textbook for how to um, perform guerrilla actions. There are some really nice little bits of work and um, Premier does a fantastic job in um, working out uh, how to film it on the locations. I mean, there are rooftop, tiled rooftops that are used. There are ancient walls in cities. Um, there are streets in the countryside and the valleys. Um, and even there's a, um, an action scene of 
one of the um, refugees escaping in Cyprus, which is quite tense as well, and shows um, a kind of brutality by the um, British forces, which was a reality but was not portrayed very heavily in this film. They really did soft pedal on that side of things. Uh, but again, it's... Um, there's a couple of weaknesses in the film, I'll be honest with you there. I think there's a scene on the ship in the harbour in Cyprus where Paul Newman's character, Ari ben Kanan is addressing the people on the ship, telling them that, you know, discussing a hunger strike they were having and how the water's going to be rationed and how they need to come to an agreement if they're going to have a hunger strike by having uh, two minutes of silence amongst everybody. And Paul Newman really underplays that role. I don't think he's a strong enough actor at this stage of his career. And he may well have been very miscast as Ari ben Kanan, even though he does have a Jewish background in his family. I think that um, you need... There's, there's movies like Cast a Giant Shadow from 1966, which plays a, a, a story contemporary with the story of Exodus. Um, and Kirk Douglas has of course been Kirk Douglas has a kind of vitality that really um lets him do a speech like that speech on the boat he would have been fantastic doing that um Paul Newman doesn't have a passion in that thing he he almost phones it in in that scene and there, there's a couple of other speeches where he's um the voice of conscience and and there's a scene at a funeral at the end of the film where he has to give a form of eulogy because there's um, not a priest or a rabbi or an imam to um, to bury the bodies of uh, a Palestinian Arab and a Jewish person. And he has to give a speech about um, you know, the nature of what's going on. And it's a good speech. I mean, it's a nice piece of writing by Dalton Trumbo. But I don't think Paul Newman gives it the gravity that it deserves. And, um, I mean, he's a good actor in a lot of things, but I think that this movie required a gravitas that for some reason Paul Newman wasn't able, been able, wasn't able to bring to the role. And then you've got Eva Marie Saint as the um, widowed nurse who falls in love with Ari ben Kane because you always have to have the love story thing, of course. And I think that either her role's underwritten or she's not right for it as well. So those two stars really, um, when they're on screen, there's not a fantastic chemistry between them either, which is kind of difficult. And the you know, at, at the centre of things, I mean, the story is that with the big sweeping epic of the story of the formation of the State of Israel, and that works. And the places where it works are in Sal Minio's character of Dov and in Barack Ben Kanan, played by Lee J. Cobb, who started out, remember, as a fantastic stage actor. And um, they have a crowd scene in that where they were expecting about 4,000 people to show up to be extras in the crowd scene. They ended up with something like 20,000 people in this enormous town square where the announcement is made that the United Nations has permitted the formation of the State of Israel. And Lee J. Cobb is fantastic in that, just talking to the crowds and um, talking about having compassion for the other Palestinians who are not Jewish and how you know they need to kind of 
create a multicultural society and, and that has a certain tragic aspect to it given more recent history of course but the movie um, where Lee J. Cobb and David Apatishu and Sal Mineo in particular are on the screen they really do give us a sense of being those characters and they play to the size of the movie because you've got to remember this is a widescreen epic in Panavision 70 it's a quite a long film runs about three hours and it's a, telling an enormously large story and that kind of obligates the actors particularly in in scenes like that to make themselves larger <laughs> to fill that screen and to, and to feel that presence and to feel those characters and the ideas that they're putting across and i really don't think that paul newman carries that well and that's a bit of a shame because it's a good movie. Uh, Ernest Gold got an Academy Award for the um, for the soundtrack of the movie, which went on to be very popular as well. It was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Salminio, and I agree with that. It's um, really uh, a role that deserved a nomination, if not the Oscar itself. In fact, Salminio did win Best Supporting Actor at the Golden Globes. I just looked up who Salminio was running against in the Best Supporting Actor Oscar at the time. And as an interesting um, bunch of men, uh, Chill Wills for the Alamo, where he played a beekeeper. Uh, Jack Crucian in The Apartment, playing Dr. Dreyfus in Billy Wilder's The Apartment. Peter Falk in Murder, Inc., playing Abe Rills. Again, all, all three of them good actors person who won was Peter Ustinov playing Lentulus Batias in Spartacus. So um, there were two of the nominees for Best Supporting Actor who were appearing in Dalton Trumbo's movies. And I liked Peter Ustinov in Spartacus. I think that's a sly and interesting and oleaginous character that he plays. But I really think that Salminio in Exodus, because of such a raw portrayal of a damaged human being and, and who's redeemed ultimately by love, but who went through monstrous things and the writing by Trombo is perfect and the delivery is perfect by Salminio. I think that uh, that maybe deserved it a bit more than Ustinov did. But that again, that's a subjective opinion. But uh, just to kind of wind it up for Exodus, I really like the film, but it does have that kind of weakness at the top end. Now, other people may agree, but it's um, and, and the lack of truth in the history of the ship again makes it problematic. And um, it's a controversial film in a lot of ways. People see it as Zionist propaganda, other people see that um, the complexities of the political situation in that part of the world at the time aren't really done justice. And um, justifying a, a terrorist act a, as a part of a formation of a state is is again something that's plays differently in 2017 than it might have in 1960 and of course in 1947 but um, nonetheless it's good to visit these big movies that were very very popular at the time it was fantastically popular less so in England than in America because it, it isn't particularly kind to the English but given the fact that the English um, at the time the events portrayed actually occurred weren't at their best let's say 
it really does, um, yeah, yeah, that's to be expected that it didn't play as well in England as it did in um, America. But it's a good movie to watch. Uh, I, I didn't find the time dragging through the whole process. Uh, the locations and the accuracy of the portrayals as far as, you know, life in a kibbutz is concerned and what the kids do and um, the skill with which a lot of the actors portray these characters really does lift it above the usual kind of epic movies. And Trumbo, in adapting a book which wasn't historically accurate, I think has done a good job. But again, at the top end, the movie kind of lacks... um, the oomph and the kind of heft that is required for this kind of a film. But anyway, um, that's about it this time around. Uh, I really enjoyed doing these two movies. They're very, very different. I deliberately chose movies that were very different because I didn't want to kind of keep a, a consistent tone during the film, which is kind of funny. But um, I like doing uh, a satire that doesn't work plus an historical epic that works for the most part fantastically well with a couple of kind of qualms about it. But uh, this is the kind of thing I want to do more too. Uh, I really want to start, uh, I'll be blogging a bit about movies that I watch and putting together some things with the copious spare time I hope to have in the near future. And I'll also be... um, taking more care with the production of the podcast. I apologize if the quality has gone down recently. It has been a difficult time for me and for Sal, but we're getting through that and we will um, prevail, as indeed we are already starting to. Nonetheless, um, it has been tough, and if you're stuck through the podcast during these difficult times, thank you very much. I really do appreciate it. Great people giving feedback, people like Chris Mounts and um, a good friend Morris and... and um, Davy Mack and uh, uh, tons of other people support from Will and Rick over at GGTMC. Um, it really has been a lot of fun. And having that community, which I really have to contribute more to, to be honest with you, uh, around me really does help. And um, for instance, this afternoon, even Sal, Sal's been a fantastic support too. I've really got to give her some kudos here because it was getting early in the afternoon. She said, get off your ass and podcast. Now, normally she doesn't do that, but she said, get off your ass on podcast. You've seen the movies. You know what you want to do. Stop playing games on the console and get the fucking thing done. And I have now, so I'm quite pleased with that. So anyway, thanks again for your support. Thanks, of course, to all of the Patreon supporters, Best Boy, Kerry, the other Kerry, everybody else who's a part of the um, support group who help keep the podcast on the air. And, of course, to all of the listeners. It's amazing. I'm getting a lot of variety in the number of um, downloads of the podcast. And that's kind of interesting, too, because it doesn't give me a clear picture of what kind of movies you people want me to do. So definitely give me that feedback. Hit the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook and tell me what you want to hear. Um, uh, If you say Star Wars again, I'm going to hit you. But apart from that... uh, Tell me the kind of movies you want to um, do in general terms. As I said, we're doing disaster films uh, later in the year. And um, I'm also doing a couple of westerns with uh, Davey Mack at some stage in the the not-too-distant future. But anyway, take it easy. I will update everybody on my life circumstances next time around. There's a Martian Drive-In podcast next weekend. 
Paleo Cinema the weekend after that. Look after yourselves. If you're down here, stay warm. If you're up there, stay cool. And I'll be back very soon. And here, of course, as usual, are the credits. And after that, I will play a tune which is not unrelated to one of the subjects of this particular podcast. See you later. Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers. And here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them. We have Tom, our focus puller, Sarah, our special effects technician, Ian, our caterer, Grant, our technicolor consultant, Claire, our script doctor, Gary, our prop master, Morris, our music director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress, Tansy, the foley artist, Alyssa, the location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, our donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, Steve, our script doctor, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Kerry, our second script doctor, Richard, our set photographer, and our extras, Kathleen, Mark, and David. And let's not forget Steve Sullivan, our director of Monster Effects, and Richard C., our transportation co-captain. So thank you very much to all the subscribers, and you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema. I've had a lot of thrills in my life. Three kids, a gorgeous wife, such looks. I'm thrilled about my car, Riviera, my sister Sarah, and John O'Hara's books. But the thrill of thrills that gave my heart a clout was the thrilling night when I thrillingly found out. Steve McQueen is Jewish, would you believe it? He's just like you and I, couldn't you almost die? And Cary Grant is Jewish, could you conceive it? Such a living doll in a prayer shawl. Marlon Brando's Jewish, Pat O'Brien and Richard Conti. Not to mention that lovely couple, Harry and Bella Fonte. Frank Sinatra's Jewish, would you believe it? Sean Connery and Lyndon Johnson, too. As a matter of fact, the whole world is Jewish since I fell in love. With you, Rosie McGonagall, since I fell in love.